Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. My name's Catherine Carr, and this is Season 3 of Relatively, the podcast all about potentially the longest relationships of your life. I'll be bringing siblings together to talk about the connections they have as adults, as well as what it was like growing up together. I think we've both been too talkative. (laughs) (laughs) We've both been in professions where it's been useful. This week, we're talking to Professor Sir Christopher Frayling and his older brother, the very Reverend Nicholas Frayling. I can see us as two old codgers, you know, contradicting each other and, uh, oh, yeah. and reminiscing. We manage that without living together. Yeah. <laughs> but I'll also talk to them separately to get a more private take on the relationship. He gets a bit worried about me. I think he gets a bit worried that I've gone too far sometimes. Uh, I think he'd be worried about one or two things I've said to okay. you, actually. But, but I was less unhappy at prep school than, than Christopher, who was unhappy almost to the point of disturbance, I think. Oh. I think. And in a new twist, I'll be delving a little further back with the help of our sponsors, Find My Past, the family history experts. Frederick William was born in India. I never knew that. Did you, Nick? Interesting. Gosh, this is all new stuff. Brothers and sisters are never straightforward. Retired Dean of Chichester, Nicholas, and cultural commentator and former chairman of the Arts Council, Christopher, were raised by a pioneering mother and an exacting father, whose rags-to-riches success in the fur trade made him ambitious for his boys. We talk about parental expectation, boarding school, finding God in prison, long family stories and being anti-establishment. But Christopher started by explaining their specific sibling setup. I was born in 1946. My brother, Nicholas, is two years, ten months older than I was. He was born in February 1944. I would have been the middle brother, but uh, Michael, my mother's firstborn, lived for only 14 days. There was another brother, Michael, who died a couple of years before my brother, but we're the two. So although I was the elder brother, in a curious way, I wasn't, if you know what I mean. So it was... was, uh, it was quite an unusual situation. But as far as Chris is concerned, I've always been the older by nearly three years. Can you remember when Chris arrived in the world? Do you have an early memory or your earliest um, memory of him? One never knows whether one's kind of reading back. But uh, he was gravely ill very early. He got gastroenteritis. And I can remember terrible anxiety. I mean, I was normal. In fact, an enormous baby. Mother having been warned about having babies. And I think she must have been absolutely desperate at the thought of losing him. Yes, I was in the pram outside the front door of the house. And as it happened, the uh, the GP was visiting my mother and looked at me and said, get that child into hospital. He's, you know, uh, within days of dying. Nothing would stay How down. How did you know? Uh, I, I, I imagine I was defecating and puking everywhere okay. and, 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 and looked green. Okay. You know? So off I went to this hospital and I was there for a long time uh, with a drip feeder stuck into me. He was taken off to hospital when he was tiny and he had um, stomach trouble for a long 
many years. I used to, I'm afraid, mock him when he was carsick and seasick and, you know, by making sort of <laughs> noises, which was, looking back on it, very cruel. Really mean. <laughs> <laughs> very cruel. But um, I can remember that. Nick did say he was really mean, that when you're a bit older and you used to get carsick and seasick, uh, <laughs> he would tease really, you. <laughs> he would indeed. Yes, I was very carsick. And then they, they invented this thing where they'd put a, a chain or a piece of metal on the back bumper, which... Uh, went along the road and this was said to sort of anchor the car and it didn't do any good at all but it was the latest thing and so they did that and but there was a lot of motor motoring as we used to call it because mother was a brilliant driver and we all went on holidays in an allard car which was a souped up sport which wasn't really a family car at all very high speed with racing gear changes and all the rest of it it's fancy him remembering then he'd turn around and shriek with laughter or or, or say oh what have you done you know make fun of you (laughs) exactly i'm afraid so when your mum talked about your older brother, yeah. did it make certain things make sense or is that too simplistic? I think what made sense was was the really tragic way in, in which she'd never talked it through or never had any counselling or help. I mean, the child was taken away. She was never allowed a funeral or anything of that kind. Dad was in the army and couldn't come home. They just exchanged telegrams. But the really moving thing was that she described his features with great, great precision and clarity. He looked exactly like my father, born with an enormous amount of ginger hair, which I used to have as well. But I I, I can't say that this ever weighed with me over the years because he was never mentioned. I get the feeling that there's quite a bit of distance between you and your parents emotionally. Neither of them were affectionately close, though he was very sentimental. Okay. You know, although he couldn't express emotion, he would virtually cry at the sight of a Chelsea pensioner. <laughs> he he was very sentimental. He would cry during the credit titles of the film Casablanca, uh, just in anticipation of, of crying during it. Uh, and he'd take us to the Royal Tournament and the That's Edinburgh right. Tattoo right. and all that military and burst into tears with military music. Yes. The great phrase he used to say was, wasn't it, change key, the bastards, right. when he was watching something, yeah. and yeah. Uh, uh, to cover his tears, because yeah, you don't show it. You know, yeah. Change key, the bastards. We do sometimes say that, don't we, to each other, you know, when, when the, the some you know, beautiful bit of military music or something is, is played. One of us will say, oh, change key, the bastards. <laughs> but, uh, you know, thinking about it, looking in a way, they didn't quite know how to do it with yeah. children. They were not demonstrative people. I mean, how could they have been? Mother's father died when she was two, and her mother set about running the family business, which was Imhoff's of New Oxford Street. She never saw her mother. And father had grown up in the regiment where his childhood was was spent in Ireland, South Africa, Egypt, Palestine. So he had a very unsettled childhood. In the 50s, you know, I don't think Many people were very tactile no. or very good at expressing emotions, and we certainly weren't. No, and I'm, a, forgive me, a bit younger than you and you're a bit older than I am, but the, the sort of war played out in our parent, the parenting that we received in similar ways, I would say, post-war babies or wartime babies. There wasn't much space for parenting and emotional support as we see it no, now. And, and, you know, when you think, I, I went away to boarding school when I was just seven. That was going to be my next question. You can see it in the long, with the long view now in the context of all of these generational shifts, you can see why it might have played out like that. But when you're seven, I yeah. don't think you see that at all. No, and I think it's very interesting, you know, the difference between 
school land and homeland that uh, the theory was that Nick was at school and I would go, wouldn't it be great for the two brothers to be together, which is a complete misunderstanding of how how boarding schools work, which is the nine-year-olds don't speak to the six-year-olds. And so it was doubly frustrating. He was there, but he wasn't. Did you band together as siblings and seek solace in each other at school, even glimpsing each Not other at around? Not school. One no. didn't. It was frailing major and frailing minor, you know. <laughs> uh, but uh, I think in a funny sort of way, but one reads back into these things, I think in a way we were partners in adversity. I was less unhappy at prep school than, than Christopher, who was unhappy almost to the point of disturbance, I think. Oh. I think. I went very – I mean, famously, I once um, – I once referred to uh, the matron, a woman called Miss Morris, as mummy. Because actually, in some ways, I knew her better than I knew than I knew mum. Nick did say that you found prep school almost unbearably hard. I did. I ran away, actually, a couple of times. I only made it to Hassock Station and then lost my nerve and came back in disgrace. Yes, I did. Uh, particularly the uh, aged... 7 to 12 or 13, I found that very, very difficult. The parents would come and take us both out. I think you were allowed out twice a term. So they'd come down and take you Big to Brighton. Wow, Great thing, to Bright- <laughs> off to Brighton, uh, to the King Alfred restaurant, and then yeah. the slot machines on the pier. This was the great excitement. But when Nick left, they came less because it wasn't worthwhile just to come for one uh, instead of two. So I, I, was, I was very much on my own for the latter part of my time. And uh, no, I hated it. In fact... Um, it's very like Decline and Fall by Evelyn Moore. Oh. A lot of completely unqualified, sometimes brilliant, the teachers, mm. but by chance. They didn't have a qualification among them. They were slightly sort of lost souls, largely unmarried, came out of the, out of the war and drifted towards teaching in this rural prep school. It, you know, in terms of accountability and standards, it was, it was Neanderthal. Yeah, I was just thinking of the sort of safeguarding things, that the hoops that you jumped through. And I don't say that as thinking it's a bad thing at all to do that, but all of that that's in place now and well, how little accountability and I mean, this observance is very, that was. This is a very difficult one because a book was written about uh, our prep school a few years ago and a lot of the ex-pupils were asked to contribute to the book and it poured out. You know, there were all sorts of things going on, which I experienced and which others experienced much worse than I did, which had been kept, you know, the lid had been kept on them for... Half a century. Mm. By today's standards, it was horrendous. We're talking abuse, proper abuse. Yeah. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Corporal? Uh, sort of. Um, you know, uh, uh, I mean, I was beaten with my pyjamas down. You know, that's nasty, actually. And then you'd go back to the dormitory and show off your scars and try and be terribly strong. And then in the quietness of the night, when they'd all gone away, you just cried yourself to sleep for hours. Yes, you did. Chris was academic, and my saving grace was music, really, yeah. because I, I, I was hopeless at exams, and neither of us were very sporty, yeah. and that was always quite difficult. I can imagine in public schools in the 50s and 60s as boys, yeah. that, that's the currency. Yes, and, you know, there was a, a lot of corporal punishment and this sort of thing. It was uh, difficult. I can now see, and I've seen it in many other people, I was a very late developer. Yeah. But it didn't happen at school. It was not the happiest experience. It was a law unto itself, and I hated it. Uh, and it, it went quite deep with me. It led to a slight bloody-mindedness in my mind about authority, never trusting authority. Yeah. And gravitating to art school is a great way of being in a world where nobody trusts their elders uh, <laughs> and you just push the envelope as hard as you can. It was very much my sort of world. And when we left school... He went straight to Cambridge on, on an exhibition and stayed on to do a PhD, absolutely brilliant. And I went from job to job to job. I think probably for him and for the family, 
it was very difficult. And particularly, I think, for father, who was a an ambitious man who came from a very modest background and wanted, you know, the very best for us. Yes, it can't have been easy for him. I mean, for a moment at Repton School, secondary school, for a moment we were in the same form. Oh, really? Can you imagine that from his point of view? Awful. Two years, ten months older, and he was stuck in the O-level stream, and I went straight into the fast stream. That must have been very difficult for him. I went. I wasn't smug about it. In fact, I... I empathised with it, I think. It was just embarrassing for both of us. No, you didn't want it either, presumably. But once he'd found it, he was running. I found that very difficult. Now, of course, you know, I rejoice in his success, but it was difficult. I think he would probably say that I was the favoured one. I never sort of saw it quite that way. Mm. Um, And I suppose, in teenage, I was jealous of his success. Mm. He did say he had the feeling that he might... It's an odd thing that he described, that he was, on the one hand, sort of the favourite as you just said, and on the other hand, a disappointment. He took a long time to settle down, my brother. Uh, Tried the record business because on my mother's side, there was the Imhoff connection with record shop in New Oxford Street. So he worked on it, didn't didn't take to management traineeship at all, and then took this sideways step into Pentonville to start with, and then the church, and it transformed him completely. Mm. I came under the influence of a wonderful prison chaplain, Michael Shrewsbury. I sometimes tell people I found myself in Pentonville, which I think I probably did, and all sorts of stories I could tell about that. But, I mean, it was a extraordinary experience. And um, from there, went on to be ordained. And so was it, I mean, this sounds really cheesy thing to say, but was it in prison, which can feel like quite a godless place, that you yeah. thought, actually, no, I think I might have found something like yes. God here? Yes, yeah, I think that's a, that's, a, that's a shrewd question, but it's not an obvious, not in an obvious sense, because the great love of my wife is music, and uh, I was organist of an inner city parish up the junction, as they used to say, in Battersea. And so I was brought into the life of the church, really, through making music, which I loved, always have. The combination of that and the sharp awareness of social division, educational disadvantage, mental health, in a grossly overcrowded prison, I kind of grew up there and developed what I suppose you might call a social conscience. Actually, before then, he was rather a conflicted character who felt huge, great expectations. Uh, You know, father was an overachiever. Mother was too, although rather repressed by father. She was a professional rally driver, uh, won the RSC rally in 1952 (laughs) in an an Allard 12, uh, but sort of gave it up. And so, uh, you know, but great expectations with Nick, and he felt that. I would say, having made this podcast for a year and a bit now and talked to a lot of sibling partners, that uh, generally the favoured one (laughs) doesn't know or feel that they're favoured. But of course, the one who doesn't feel favoured very much feels that they're not favoured. Looking back on it, I suppose the, the circumstances of the parents are very difficult, but I've always felt that perhaps I was a disappointment to my father because neither of us had gone into business. He, he had a very severe stroke in, in his early 80s. And when he was in Kingston Hospital, he couldn't speak, but he could write in a scrawly way. Um, almost the last thing he wrote is, why isn't Nick a bishop? Oh. Which I found very difficult. And we then talked about it. It was a one-sided conversation, yeah. you know. And I said, well, as a matter of fact, I had four offers of preferment when I was in Liverpool. And I declined all of them because I was very happy where I was. And I felt that I was doing, objectively, doing a good job. 
But I, I, I don't think dad was ever quite reconciled to the fact that I wasn't uh, governor of the Bank of England or something of that kind. <laughs> God forbid. <laughs> yeah. When I wrote my first book in the early 70s, I very proudly handed it to father and he looked at it and said, huh, suppose you think you're bloody Charles Dickens now. He was harsh. He but was harsh. He was well, harsh. he wasn't good at expressing emotions. This season of Relatively is sponsored by Find My Past, the online home of the 1921 census. In 1921, England and Wales were reeling from the Great War, and it shows in the census entries of surviving soldiers. Retired Army officer Harold Samuel Alpen apologised for typing his form, explaining that he lost half his right hand in the late war and cannot write properly. Another former serviceman simply wrote, ruined by war, in the section for occupation. How much do you know about your parents' and grandparents' lives in peacetime? Find out in the 1921 census, exclusively available online at findmypast.co.uk. Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ, the official ETF of the NCAA. Invesco QQQ is proud to sponsor this episode and even prouder to provide access to innovation for the last 25 years. Basketball has had innovations over the years too. We're seeing the game played in new ways every day. Learn more at Invesco.com QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc., And how would you describe his character now? If you were sort of describing him to someone who's never met him before, oh, you must meet my brother Nick, he's... On the surface, conventional, hierarchical, interested in protocol, cautious. Underneath, uh, passionate, a huge heart, a big, big social conscience, and an unshakable faith. His favourite composer is Elgar, Mm. and Elgar has this extraordinary combination of on the surface very conventional Mm. knows how to play the game but underneath he has these strong strong passions that come through in his music a very English kind of combination and I think Nick has that in spades doesn't necessarily let the lid off very often. So how would you describe Christopher other than an early developer and very very clever how else would you describe um, Frailing Minor? Well I mean (laughs) an art critic described him as a polymath almost as, a, as an insult. But actually, he is quite extraordinarily versatile. He's a cultural historian. I mean, whether it's spaghetti westerns, gothic horror, the history of art or whatever. And we have, I think, probably grown steadily closer as the years have gone on. That's interesting. Why do you think that might be? I don't know, really. I suppose we, we've, we've, we've both followed our own paths and both, I suppose you could say, done well. And as childhood has sort of faded a bit, we've been able to look back on it objectively and uh, often with great humour. Do you have any nicknames for him or or pet names? Well, he was Nick the Vic for a time when he was the vicar. Uh, (laughs) Do you have nicknames for each other at all, apart from major and minor? No, I don't think we do. (laughs) He he still tends to call me Nicky, which I hate, but... um, uh, I prefer Nick. I was I was known as Podgy when I was small. I Were don't know you? if he told you this no. because I I was rather sort of rotund. In fact, strangely, I was quite large when I was born, and the doctor said, uh, you know, he's going to be a rugby prop forward. He couldn't be more wrong about that. I can tell you, <laughs> but I was Podgy, so I was known as Podge. He's more serious-minded than I am, 
So I, I tend to be very imaginative. I, I love fantastical things. I get bored by realism in art, uh, whereas he's very much a realist anchored in the empirical facts of everyday life. So he gets a bit worried about me. Okay. I think he gets a bit worried that I've gone too far sometimes. <laughs> uh, I think he'd be worried about one or two things I've said to okay. you, actually. But um, When I was asking Chris to describe you, Nick, he described you a bit like Elgar, huh? sort of an English gentleman on the top, seemingly conventional, but big passions underneath. Well, that's, that's, he's entitled to his opinion. I mean, I've always had a great passion for Elgar's music, I think. But but whether it's high empire or heroic melancholy, I don't know. But uh, that's interesting, yeah. I think you're quite humble about your... You sort of said, oh, I developed a social conscience, or whatever you call it. And then you have done all of these tremendous things yeah. with your platform. You strike me as quite humble about it. Well, it's hardly for me to say, but it's brought enormous... Fulfillment, actually. And, and also, we touched on the rather dysfunctional life of the two parents. One, you know, one family virtually refugees and the other cavorting around the empire with the regiment and, and all the disruption of childhood and so on as a model of a family life. It was really very peculiar. I mean, it must be very unusual not to have known any of our grandparents. Well, yes, we were talking about Yeah, we were. Yeah. They could have been a sort of fail-safe where parents were concerned. They could have been a role model. They could have been an, an, another world one could run to, but I didn't have any. In effect, I didn't have any grandparents, and that's quite unusual, I think. I think so. And, and, you, and you sense it's missing as well, I think. I do, very no, very little. much so. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, that sort of trauma, and I think you can call it a trauma, definitely, as a child, does tend to make you quite self-reliant. But I wonder, Nick said your relationship as you've got older, you've got sort of on a trajectory getting closer much, and closer. Much. While you haven't relied on elders and perhaps authority, have you learnt to rely more on him? I wouldn't say rely on him, but I am much, much closer to him. I think when our parents were alive, we were competing with them. And, you know, sometimes when, when a parent dies, it gets worse. You find you're competing with their ghost, which is even stronger than the... And I was worried that might happen. I did went through a rather frantic period after the father died in the mid-90s and late-90s where I was, you know, writing books, chairing committees, running the Royal College, all sorts of things, and too much. Proving uh, yourself a I bit. was. But then once that simmered down, yes, we, we became much, much closer, see much more of each other. Emotionally, we're very important to each other, to reminisce. I mean, I have uh, three stepchildren. Uh, he's childless, you know, he's single. And so, in a way, we're, we're, we are each other's emotional support. It doesn't go anywhere after this. I write, we're both quite thin-skinned about criticism. And I don't quite know why, except that there was quite a lot of criticism in the household. Mm. That's, it's a strong uh, you know. theme, I have to say. Yeah, yeah. Um, and one of the sadnesses is his mother, who round about the year 2000, just before she died, it was the 50th anniversary of the RAC rally. And I accompanied her because father was dead. And they had the March of the Champions. One woman, 49 men. And I was so proud. It was extraordinary. And she didn't see it. Those were the days when private entrants could still go into these rallies. They've all, all got commercial backing and that sort of thing now. So it was quite remarkable, really. It's much more professional. I mean, most of the rally drivers were sort of uh, Finnish in, you know, one-piece tracksuits after about 1960. But she had a quite complex relationship with her brother, Goff, I think, Godfrey. They used to fight like cat and dog. But and they the one... drove together. She was the co-driver, so there yes. was the Imhoff team, right. as it were. There was the Imhoff team, yes, exactly. There exists an old film of the rally, and then at the end they said, oh, you know, what a surprise, you know, Godfrey Imhoff. But it's wonderful, this piece of film, because there's yeah. the car uh, yeah. on the front at Brighton at the end of it, and there's Mum in a big old hat. That's you right. Know, it's wonderful. I don't think, I don't think 
we realised how remarkable that was for a woman in the early 50s. But what I think I did come to realise was that Dad was... Jealous would be the wrong word, but resentful of her success, I think. Wouldn't you think, Chris? No, definitely. Well, I was saying that I don't think Father liked that, uh, Mother being part of that world, so that was part of it too. But he was away so much. We were away at school, which, as I, as I said to you, Catherine, Mother never really wanted. Mm-hmm. She was very lonely, yeah. I think. Um, and I was very sad that it kind of stopped, 53, 54, you know, if only she'd really let rip with her talents, yeah. that, that would have been, I think, a different story. The sibling podcast is about how you fit in the sort of short family history of your sort of growing up times and how you can retell those stories. And not many siblings, I would say, have done the work that you've done, which is see your story in this sort of context of all these other stories. Yeah. And I know this season, obviously, Find My Past is sponsoring relatively, so it's part of that. But I think you've done that anyway. You're interested in where you fit in anyway, that seems to me, yes, as yeah. a pair of brothers. But the 1921 census has just been digitised, so I don't know yeah. if you've had a chance to have a look at that. No, no. So your family, Christopher's grandfather, Frederick, as we know, band leader in the army. Christopher's wife, Catherine, her parentage unknown. You named her as Mary, but all records indicate Catherine. Mary Peacock, Catherine. Mm, Catherine. That's interesting. And it actually does have, I think, November the 21st, 1913, in the Whitby Gazette, is the picture of Frederick getting his Royal Victorian Order in recognition of the services of the band at the wedding of Captain H.R.H. Prince Arthur of Connaught. Yes. Oh, yes, who was colonel-in-chief by that stage. And it does mention all of this um, amateur dramatics. The Whitby Gazette. The Whitby oh, because they were based in York then. Yeah. Yeah. Yes, yes. Frederick William was born in India. I never knew that. Did you, Nick? Frederick William Froning, born in 1871 in Bengal, India. Well, well, well. There's a very interesting thing here about grandfather. They talk about his English decorations. Mm. And the floods, the floods. Yes, now that's interesting. Born in 1885 in the 81 census, Kathleen Nora Flood, your maternal grandmother, was living in the household of Frederick Flood and his wife Eliza in Greenwich, West London. Yeah, That's interesting. Yes. I'm toying with the idea of taking Irish citizenship. Oh. And uh, the Floods are an Irish family from Athlone originally, apparently. And unfortunately, all the records in Ireland, the... uh, the four courts were, were shelled by the British during the Troubles. It's in, interesting to see that uh, great-grandmother was born in Portsea in Hampshire. I'm now in retirement hoping to look after yes. All Saints Portsea, oh, which is a quite poor parish opposite the docks. How amazing. Henry Flood, a tailor, Nick. Yeah. yeah. Gosh, this is all new stuff. The Apparently the, the name, thing. even earlier than, than coming to, to England, is alleged to be a Scandinavian to do with the goddess Freya. F-R-E-Y-A, yes, yes, a goddess of plenty. And uh, and in fact, it is said that the early motto of the family, which you have to be very careful how you say this, erectus non illatus, which basically means be straightforward, don't be too flexible. But if you're not careful, it can mean something a little bit different. <laughs> don't um, you have your own motto when you were knighted? Tell I did. me about that. <laughs> I did. I wanted something from the film world. I got a, a scholar from Oxford to translate the deathless phrase from Clint Eastwood's Dirty Harry's for Harry films in Latin, Perge scelus fecit mihi diem perficias, which roughly translated means go ahead, punk, make my day. And I think it's probably the first Clint Eastwood motto in the history of the heraldry since The Black Prince. Um, one of the themes that comes out of this podcast is the way that as you get older and older still, you sort of it dawns on you that your sibling relationships are the longest of your lives if you're lucky. We've looked back a lot. How do you look forward with your sibling relationship? Well, I think we can only get closer, I would have thought, as we get older in our twilight years. Uh, it's uh, it's interesting because neither of us have quite 
decided where we're going to end up. I, I don't think you know where you're going to end up, and I don't know where I'm going to end up. And, That's uh, an issue for me at the moment, actually. I got COVID relatively badly about a year ago. I, I only had a day in hospital, but I was two or three months in my flat in South Sea. It was very isolated, and I got this fantasy I could be dead there for three weeks and nobody would know. Christopher, not entirely sensitive, he said, well, if you're dead, you wouldn't worry. But I, I thought it wasn't quite what I was looking for. But, uh, he was asking for an annex. Yeah, yes, but, but it, 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 the problem would be if I wasn't quite dead, you know. We're very important to each other now, and uh, we actually dared go on holiday together, which oh, we'd never, you? never done before. When was that? We went on a boat up the Thames together, which is... <laughs> and when you're in... A, really confined space on the Thames, you know, that really you do learn about somebody and uh, we got on rather well. Well, late night chats when you're lying down, those are different. They're like walking chats. Walking chats are different to sitting chats. And late night lying down in the dark chats, those are really different. No, no, it's true. It's true. Which we could never have done at home. But... uh, yeah. Uh, no, I, I can see us as two old codgers, you know, contradicting each other and uh, oh, yeah. and reminiscing uh, till the cows come home. We manage that without living together. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you to Nicholas. Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ, the official ETF of the NCAA. The future isn't scary not realizing its potential, however, could be. Just like on the recruiting trail, I've seen potential come in many forms as a coach. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc. And Christopher. And thank you, too, for listening. But neither of us lacks the gift of the gap. (laughs) Nicholas, by the way, is chaplain still of the British Nuclear Test Veterans Association. I'd also like to say a huge thank you to our sponsors for this season of Relatively Find My Past for digging into their extraordinary records and uncovering the surprising and often revelatory family stories, some of which you've heard today. Find My Past is the only place online where you can access the 1921 census. So if you want to start your family tree or add colour to what you know already, then findmypast.co.uk is the place to do it. Next week, the interior designer Sophie Robinson and her brother Ed on growing up in the countryside and childhood vandalism. Thank you to Tanita Tickerham for letting us use her amazing song. This is a pocket production and sound design is by Nick Carter at mixsonics.com. Safe inside, only your ma's too proud. Your brother's ignoring you. You still feel safe inside. Oh, was it solo? Was it yesterday? Was it true for you? Cause while all